you can't look at somebody and think, oh, they did that thing. I'm going to copy that and then I'll be funny. I'm going to copy the way they stand and then people will listen to me. I'm going to copy their tone of voice. Uh, No, you have to find all of those things in yourself and they look different in every single person. If you can dig into yourself and just be more like you, but in a professional context, things actually are quite easy. Welcome to Hypercurious, a show that it's all about finding your happiness by embracing changes and following your curiosity. My name is Beta Luca. I'm a BAFTA-winning serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and multi-hyphenate. Each week, I unveil the most intriguing aha moments and leaps of learnings of successful leaders, founders, authors, and artists, and how they achieved greatness by staying hypercurious. I'm beyond thrilled today to welcome you the most impressive multi-hyphenate I know. Viv Groskop is a writer, critic, broadcaster, and stand-up comedian. She's the author of How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking. She's a regular on the BBC Once this week and has hosted book tours for Graham Norton, Joe Brand, and Jennifer Saunders. In this episode, you learn about why everything in life is a series of wrong turns and failures that lead you to your path. We also talk about the importance of telling the story from within and showing our messy beats so that we stop putting people on a pedestal. And why doing less and being less is the route to become your most authentic self. Viv, what a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to Hypercurious. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. You are a prolific author, journalist, podcaster, comedian, radio and TV broadcaster, self-esteem coach. Wow, you are true multi-hyphenate and I admire you so much. Do you consider yourself to be someone who's hyper-curious? <laughs> Thank you very much for that introduction. I always think when people list the things that I do, that sounds like such an annoying person. Am I hypercurious? Yes, of course. And I think that curiosity is probably one of the things that drives me the most. I think maybe alongside independence or freedom, those things are really important to me. I've been a freelancer for more than 20 years. I worked in offices in newspapers and magazines in my early 20s and soon realized that I really struggled to work within a structure. And I think that my drive towards curiosity is a big part of that. I resist doing one thing. I'm always distracted by some other thing that I've just found out about. I'm always reading about five or six books at the same time. And I always think there's something in our culture that tells us we shouldn't do that and that we should be focused on one thing and not to have a butterfly mind. But for me... I've learned to settle into my curiosity and my pluralism. I think when I was younger, I didn't necessarily feel that comfortable in it. And I thought maybe it was a reflection of something bad. But now I think it's just a reflection of who I am. And it's okay to be interested in lots of different things and to be endlessly curious. I love that. And I I think you're so right. Uh, The society is always trying to put a pressure on us to choose one thing, to be a specialist and to live one life, the whole our whole life. But we can indeed live multiple lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. There was a brilliant piece of advice was given to me uh, by the entrepreneur and uh, brilliant business thinker, Margaret Heffernan, probably about five years ago now. I was talking to her about some decisions I was making in my career And I said, what do you think I should do? And she was quiet for a while. And then she just said, Viv, just do whatever is fun for you. And only you can define what fun means and what it looks like for you. And for some people, fun is doing one thing really, really well and really, really obsessively and being known for that one thing. But for other people, it's constantly trying new things. It's about experimentation. It's about novelty. And I think there's a lot in our culture that is about the myth of 
results and achievement. And, you know, you look at somebody like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or anybody who's held up as an example. Well, obviously, these people are often highly criticized, but very often they're held up as an example of, you know, the ultimate in success. And people will look at their story and almost try to reverse engineer it. So it looks as if they were only ever focused on one thing. They only ever had one idea. But in reality, those people tried loads and loads of things that didn't work. They took loads of wrong turns. And when you get to the top of something and when you become very successful, those things become written out of your story and it turns into this one track idea. And for me, I always wanted to, I'm not trying to compare myself to Jeff Bezos, by the way. I wish. You're much better <laughs> would, than him. You're much better than him. <laughs> I would be speaking to you from the Bahamas, Peter. I've always wanted to avoid that idea of trying to reverse engineer things because often success comes from a lucky break. It comes from a coincidence and it doesn't come from something that you can reverse engineer. You have to do the work and you have to be in the right place at the right time. But without that lucky break or without that moment of certain things that fell into alignment, you wouldn't be where you are. So this idea that you follow one track and you do everything right and then you get to the top is a myth. <laughs> you know, everything is a, a series of, of wrong turns that only with hindsight look as if they make sense. And the worst thing about that is that people feel that there's always an overnight success and it feels as if they always knew where, what they were doing. But as you say, it's like that, there are a lot of dead ends, right? Yeah, absolutely. I often think um, when I'm reading about somebody who has gone through a lot of difficulties and had a lot of failures and then had a breakthrough, that there are another thousand people with that story who didn't have the breakthrough, And we don't ever really hear from them. <laughs> It's very interesting how we love to celebrate the people who made it. And we want to hear how great it is to be in that position of having made it. But we often actually reject the people who are somewhere in the process where that moment hasn't come yet. And I'm actually probably much more interested in the people who, who don't make it. <laughs> I'm interested in people who continue their work because it matters to them and because they find meaning in it and they continue despite the absence of external validation. I'm really, really interested in that. And often a piece of work, whether it's a book or a show or an idea, often when it does become really, really successful, you discover that in fact, there's a story of it having been rejected multiple times, but the person who had the idea believed in it and they continued with it. And that's always really fascinating to me. There's, there's a film I really love called The Lives of Others, which is a German film, which won uh, the uh, Foreign Film Academy Award, and maybe I don't know, 15 years ago now, and it's a film about uh, surveillance uh, during the communist era. And it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant film about human nature and creativity. And it's, it's just a brilliant film, The Lives of Others. And I had no idea that this film was rejected for about 20 years. I only happened to look it up after I rewatched it um, at the beginning of the pandemic because I really wanted to find something that would make me feel hopeful. I rewatched this film and then I was Googling everything about it. I had had no idea that the writer of the film had been told, you know, this is a terrible idea. This is a stupid idea. Nobody will be interested. Go away. <laughs> and he refused to let go of the film. And even when the film was made, it was made with a tiny, tiny budget. All the actors who worked on it, who were big names in German cinema, they all had to do it at a vastly reduced fee. Everybody thought it was just a passion project that would go nowhere. And that's the kind of project that I think is, is completely fascinating, is where the real reason it's being made is because somebody really, really cares, not because somebody has decided oh, this is a good idea and it's going to make lots of money. Wow, this is, this is a big lesson. How 
do you decide if you're going to go for something like that and continuously persevere to get through the, the film to be done versus something that might be a lower hanging, hanging fruit that might be more appealing to wide audiences? How, as an artist, do you choose that? For me, it's a very profound question of how do you decide what to do with your time? How do you decide, decide what to do with your life? You know, do you allow yourself to define it from your own instincts or do you follow the flow? Do you listen to people who say, follow this career path and these things will happen? Or are you just going to make it up yourself as you go along? I think a lot of it is to do with how you grow up and the, the messages that you receive when you're growing up. I think if you're growing up in an environment where you're encouraged to try things that might not work out, where you're told, oh, it's okay if sometimes you get, you know, a B, C, D, E, F in a test, it's fine. Next time you can do better. <laughs> uh, if you're encouraged that your worth comes from within and from who you are as a person rather than from a piece of paper or an external result, I think then you have, it's easier for you to have that artistic mindset of digging into your own ideas and sticking with them. But unfortunately, in most of certainly Western culture and probably lots of other cultures as well, we're not really encouraged to think that way. We're encouraged to think you must do things that look as if they add up on paper <laughs> and I suffered from this a lot in my early career. I started um, work as a print journalist um, in the late 1990s, just as the internet was being invented. When I started um, in an office, we, there was no email. Email was a new thing that, that came in and I had to learn uh, how to send an email. <laughs> and it had always been my, my great, great wish and, and my hope that I would be a journalist, a print journalist. I felt um, very constrained by this idea that on paper, I had a really fantastic job. Um, and I can remember saying to my husband, who I met around that time, I met my husband when I was 25. And I remember saying to him, I really am so unhappy doing what I'm doing, but it's supposed to be my dream. And on paper, it looks as if I have this really great job. You know, I'm a newspaper journalist. I interview celebrities. I go and do really exciting things. I travel. And he would have said to me, you know, nothing matters on paper. Nothing matters on paper. If you want to get up in the morning and do what, what you're doing and it makes you feel passionate and it has meaning for you, that's far more valuable than to be able to point to a CV and, and say, look at all these things that I've done. This is so true. It, reson it resonates so much with me because I had a, a, a similar journey. I was born in the 70s, 80s. I'm not going to say exactly the same, the same year, but, you know, I did computer science as my first degree because I was completely enamored about the future of technology and games and et cetera. And I felt exactly the same as you as you're saying. After I finished university, I was I was questioning deeply. It was like, what have I done? Have I, you know, gone into a career that prepared me for the future, but actually it's not completely connected to to what I want to do deep inside? How did you realize? How, how was this process for you to realizing? Okay, I achieved something that on paper looked nice, and it was my narrative since since I was younger, and now I want to get out of you know behind the keyboard to the limelight on stage and go into stand-up comedy and do other things in my life. How, how, was, how was this process and what, what were you mostly afraid of? Well, I would say, Peter, this process took about 15 years. <laughs> so sometimes I think we have realizations and they take a very long time to come to the surface. For me, it was a series of incremental changes and I think sometimes you know something intellectually. So I would have known, for example, that intellectually, that it's fine to be freelance and there's, there's lots of work as a writer and it's fine to try new things and perhaps try to do some comedy. But deep inside me, I was maybe too scared or hesitant or uh, you know, afraid of what I would lose. And so I took quite a long time to be comfortable with new steps. So I was quite lucky in that I took a redundancy when I was 26 or 27, which was 
I think, a pretty unusual thing to do. I was working on a newspaper. They were offering redundancy, and it gave me a small cushion of money that gave me the permission in my own mind to take the leap to become freelance. And I'm so grateful to that moment. I have no idea what sort of person would be talking to you now if I hadn't done that. And I was lucky enough to be working in a job that I really, really hated. So it was not a difficult decision for me. Uh, It was a blessing. I did feel a certain sense of failure, uh, you know, and I was really upset when I went into the meeting to ask for the redundancy and they said yes. I was astonished and offended because I thought, how can you possibly allow me to leave? I am indispensable. I'm so important. (laughs) Why are you letting me leave? And then I had, you know, six months really where in theory, I would have not been able to work. You know, in reality, I started working immediately and started freelancing. And I learned very, very quickly that I was much happier directing my own work, not having a boss, having the freedom to work when I wanted, that I have enough self-discipline to work independently. I think that's something you have to know if, if that's what suits you or if you're better off working in a team and in a structure. And it was like a whole world opened up to me of, okay, I can work in the way I want to work. I don't have to wait for somebody to hire me. And the lesson from that just grew and grew and grew and grew. And it was really probably 10 years, eight, nine, 10 years after that, that I was able to extend that lesson to saying to myself, you know what, you really want to write comedy, you really want to perform, the only person stopping you is you. So then I started doing that. But you you tell yourself stories and I think it's useful to do this. You know, I told myself the story, I'm not really going to become a comedian. In fact, I did. But in the beginning, I said, I'm not really going to become a comedian. This is just something I might write about in my journalism, or it's just something that I'm trying, or maybe I'm having a midlife crisis. And I think it's okay to tell yourself that story if it allows you to take the next step. And you just take a small step. And then after that, you take another small step. And then when you look back, you can say, oh, okay, I was lying to myself then when I said I wasn't going to be doing this seriously. I am doing this seriously. <laughs> this is fascinating. So so your motivation to go for the uh, stand-up gig every night for 100 nights was to actually to write the book? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I started comedy in 2009 and there had been a, you know, the financial crash was in 2008 and I had noticed something which had been happening for many years already, which was the collapse of, of print journalism, which was really exacerbated by uh, the financial crash. And I could really see that this world that I had been working in by then, it would have been for almost 15 years was not going to exist soon. And I was getting pretty jaded with it anyway. There wasn't enough curiosity anymore once I'd really done that for quite a long time. I enjoyed the freedom of it. And I had my three children during that time. And it gave me the freedom to be with my children and work at the same time as much as I wanted to, which was fantastic. So there was a lot about that world I didn't want to lose. But at the same time, I could see it disappearing. And then I had a a couple of big setbacks around 2008, 2009 in my work that I really thought, okay, this is a sign. I had a contract with a newspaper that I lost. I had a column with another newspaper that was cancelled. And I can remember one thing I used to get as well when I was writing a newspaper column, I used to work for the Evening Standard, I would get free theatre tickets the whole time because I would often write about theatre in my column. And I can remember sitting in the dark in the old Vic, watching uh, this brilliant play called uh, Dancing at Lunasa, and just crying in the dark and thinking, this is the last time I'm going to get any free theatre tickets. This is the last time I'm going to write my column. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what's next. And maybe three months after that, I did my first comedy gig. So in that time, I learned, yeah, certain things are ending. That's okay. You wanted them to end anyway. It's tra- time to try something different. Give yourself permission to do something different. And yeah, so that was in 2009. I think, again, these changes that happen in our lives, with hindsight, they look a certain way, but when you're in them, they're extremely messy. 
and very painful, right? Because you're kind of mourning something that you're losing. You have to let it go to embrace something else. So it's very painful. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, 2009, I got pregnant and I miscarried. Uh, and then the year after that, I had my third child. So in between all of this change in my career, I had a lot of pain in my personal life. I was adjusting to having very small children. By 2010, I had three children under the age of five. And I still really, really wanted to do comedy, but it was becoming really difficult because I was trying to manage bringing in money with my writing, spending enough time with my children, keeping going, trying this new thing, not knowing where it's going to lead. And that's why in 2011, so 10 years ago now, I decided to do this 100 gigs in 100 nights because I was only gigging maybe once or twice a week and I wasn't getting enough back-to-back experience. I just had this extreme idea of just knock it on the head, you know, do it in three months. 100 days is pretty much three months. And then you'll know if you can dig further into this or if you should give up. And again, I found myself the excuse of, well, at least you could write a book. If it works out or if it doesn't work out, then you can write a book. But I purposefully didn't tell anyone that I was doing it. And I purposefully did not get a book deal or talk to anyone about the idea until I'd done it. Because I didn't know if I wanted to make it public or write about it. So I did these 100 gigs. I nearly gave up at 50, (laughs) but I did get through it. I did my 100 gigs in in, um, 2011. And then in 2012, I got the book deal for I Laughed, I Cried, um, which was this diary of of starting something new and difficult. And then that was published in 2013. But by then, I was actually more or less established as a as a comedian. And I started doing Edinburgh from 2013 for the next six years after that. Then it turned into something completely different. (laughs) And then after that, it turned into something completely different because all of that led to me doing How to Own the Room, which is a podcast, which has become incredibly successful. And that became a book. And that's all about celebrating the ability to be able to change who you are in the eyes of others, um, particularly on stage or on screen. One of the reasons I wrote How to Own the Room was because I felt like I'd failed with my first book, I Laughed, I Cried. I had wanted people to read I Laughed, I Cried and feel as if they could go out and do something like that in their life. But that didn't really work, interestingly, because when you write a book, people are very literal-minded about what the book's going to be about. And something about the way that book maybe was marketed or maybe the way that I wrote it, I don't know. It didn't allow people to see the universality of the experience. It took me like another three or four years to realize, oh, what I was trying to do with that book is this. And so then I was able to put a name on that thing and turn it into How to Own the Room. So How to Own the Room is a series of in-depth, entertaining analyses of dozens of women speakers from Michelle Obama to Oprah Winfrey to Joan Rivers to Virginia Woolf to Greta Thunberg, all all kinds of women speakers of all different ages from the last 100 years. And in the analysis, I show you what they do and I suggest ways in which you could find ways of behaving like that yourself or finding your own version of it. So it's partly description and and partly self-help manual that will teach you how to own the room. And when it came out, when the book came out, I had this real feeling of, Viv, you failed again. You've done it wrong again. You haven't included the voices of other women. So it's me writing about all of these women, but I didn't interview anyone for the book. I didn't include anybody else's feedback. So I had this idea for a podcast and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it or if I had enough time or if it would really work. And I'd sent the book to Mary Portas, um, the TV presenter and uh, entrepreneur, 
she got back in touch with me and said, oh, I really wanted to help you with the book, but I think it's too late. So I'd asked her to do a blurb for the cover. Is there anything else I can do for you? And so I just said, uh, yeah, you could be interviewed for the podcast, um, which did not exist. I had already done two, three, four other podcasts. I hadn't made them myself. They were podcasts that were made by other people. And through those, I'd met a lot of really great producers. So I knew that I had the producers I could go to once I wanted to make a podcast. And for me, I wanted to build something that will last and that people can listen to in 10 years' time. And, you know, I want to do an interview with Hillary Clinton about her public speaking that people can listen to in 10 years and say, oh, that's great. I haven't heard her talking about her public speaking elsewhere. And she's given some lessons that I can take away for myself. Mm. That's true. And and you, you interviewed her, you interviewed Nadia Hussein, uh, Mary Porters and stuff. Were there some common themes or mindset amongst these highly successful women that you you learned from? The common theme is that there is no common theme. And that is really interesting to me. And it's something I set out to question from the beginning. And it's something I started started to think about when I was writing how, how to own the room and it, it does come out through that book but it's come out more and more and more the more I do the podcast interviews the more it comes out there's no one way to be a great speaker there's no one way to be a great leader there's no one way to be successful you know you mentioned Nadia Hussein she's very much an accidental success story and she will say that for herself for people who don't know who she is she, she's um the woman in a hijab who won bake-off and she has become uh, this fantastic figure you know she's she's a brilliant tv presenter and she's a fantastic personality but she's also become a really interesting figure as a prominent british muslim and that has been a really positive thing and it's something that she never thought about for a second before she went on Bake Off. She didn't think that she would be seen as some kind of role model by people, that she would be exemplifying something that we don't normally see on television. She tried to get out of Bake Off. She wanted her husband to phone the producers and tell them that she had died. I mean, she really didn't want to be famous. Uh, she has huge anxiety. She finds it very difficult to, uh, she finds going on a train very difficult. It's a very good uh, TV documentary about all of this. But she's somebody who has learned to do it step by step, just taking one step at a time, saying yes to things that she feels a little bit uncomfortable with, but that she knows she can manage, saying no to a lot of things. And her path to her success is very unusual and you wouldn't be able to replicate it in anyone else. But it's incredibly inspiring because it just shows you there's no blueprint and you do get to make it up as you go along. It just involves having a bit more courage than you think you have and saying yes to things that you think probably you can't do, but maybe you actually can. <laughs> so she's a brilliant example of that. But then the complete opposite of that is somebody like Mary Portas, who is super confident, super intelligent, super entrepreneurial. She just tells it like it is. She's the sort of person who gets up in the morning and just thinks this is what I'm going to achieve today. And she does. <laughs> and hearing her talk about the moments when she was much younger, when she faced setbacks was really interesting because she said she had a, she said she used to have what she called goat voice. She was kind of you know, talking a bit, like, oh, she couldn't quite get her words out. And so she had to learn to breathe and to ground herself when she was speaking, to give herself a bit of a pep talk uh, before she would speak. And learning from someone who comes across as confident as she does, and clearly, you know, she is really confident, that she has those moments of thinking, okay, hang on a minute, just wait and breathe and prepare. That's really great. So with the spread of women who are on it, and we have, and we've had some men on it as well, um, Matt Britton from Google and Brian Cox, the succession actor, a brilliant teacher called Carl Pupé. We have had so many different kinds of people on there and everybody has a different way of owning their voice and of being successful. And I, I find it really interesting, you know, we were saying at the beginning of this conversation that there's this stereotype in the culture that success looks like this and it must be achieved in this way. And yet 
in our own individual experience, when we look around at the colleagues that we've had fun with or the colleagues we admire, the friends who we love, our family, uh, all the people around us who we know and we observe from day to day, we see that being a successful person looks completely different on everybody. It doesn't conform to any stereotype. It isn't the preserve of a certain kind of person. It has lots of ups and downs. You know, we have lots of colleagues and friends who are really, really great at certain things and we really admire them. But we also know that they have really down days or they might actually have a down year and we forgive them and we, and we don't care. And I think the more we can have stories from people who are in the public eye or who are doing important things behind the scenes who talk about what it re- all really looks like, I think it's incredibly valuable. I agree. And, and it requires a lot of courage and a moment where you can already deal with the failures of the past so that you are comfortable to talk about those vulnerable moments, right? So I think that there's, there's also the pressure that you feel that you have to be fulfilling the need of media to portray you as successful. And then you feel that you should not be talking about the failures and the bad moments because that would be a disconnect with the expectation. Yeah, that is a really profound thing. And that's something I would really like to see change in our culture. And I do think that podcasting is changing this. The activities of much younger people are really changing this. It's this idea of telling a story from within or telling a story from the beginning. Um, As you suggest, this legacy media is founded on the idea that we only want to interview really successful, noteworthy, famous people or people to whom something terrible has happened, but now they've recovered from it. It always has to be on the other side and looking back. So we're kind of safely distanced from all the messy stuff. That's what legacy media does. But I think that in the last 20 years, we see this new wave of podcasting, blogging, social media, people telling micro stories, you know, all of all of this new new wave of, of storytelling and showing human experience. I think it's incredibly valuable because we stop putting people up on a pedestal and we tell stories from the other end of the spectrum, which I think is really interesting. And much more relatable. That's why I'm leaning on to so much into podcasting and stuff because, yeah, it's real life, right? It feels much more real. Having this conversation with you now, it's like it feels like we are in the room sitting and talking about life and talking about, you know, the, the stories of our lives and learning from each other. I'm, I'm, I've been learning so much. And hopefully, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think that's a, that's a medium that is allowing us to be more real. I wanted to talk about your latest book, uh, Lift As You Climb which uh, addresses the biggest issues that women face in the workplace and the constant question of how and if we should be ambitious or communicate our ambition without sounding too self-promotional. I have an old story. Before I became an entrepreneur, I was working in large corporations. I was passed on a promotion once. And in hindsight, and I got, of course, it was very painful for me to see the guy who I thought did much less than me and ended up getting the promotion. And after I reflected on that, I understood that I was 100% heads down doing my work. And he was 50% of the time doing his work and 50% talking about the work that he was doing to others. And of course, showing how ambitious he is because he's communicating that so well. You know, my question to you is, are we missing a trick on not only about being ambitious, but communicating how ambitious we are? Yeah, definitely. I love that story, Vita. That's something very similar happened to me when I was about 24, 25, still working on a newspaper. And I found out that one of my male colleagues was being paid almost twice what I was being paid And I went to complain to my manager about it. And he said, well, we keep you in shoes, don't we? Looking down at my shoes. And I did have a lot of fabulous shoes around that time. (laughs) But I could have had a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. And I fixed that. And I tell this story in Lift As You Climb in detail. I fixed it in a way that I'm not exactly proud of. And I think perhaps I would do it differently now. This was 20 years ago. Uh, I fixed it by getting a job offer from another another newspaper and going to 
above my boss and saying, I've had this job offer and this is how much they're going to pay me and I'm pretty much committed to leaving. And they matched it. And I stayed because I didn't really want to leave my job. I just wanted to be paid at the same level. Uh, I think now that might be dealt with differently because you might have more support in doing that on a more communal level rather than doing it in the slightly individualistic Machiavellian way (laughs) that I did it. But the actual truth of all that was exactly what you say, that this guy spent a lot of his time signaling what he was doing. He spent more time signaling what he was doing than actually doing it. Whereas I had that mentality, and this is what the American coach Tara Moore, M-O-H-R, author of Playing Big, this is something she talks about all the time, what she calls good girl behavior. So the good girl behavior is get your head down, do all your work, now do some more work, get an A+, be very busy doing your work. (laughs) And the good girl behavior does not include saying to people, look, I've done this piece of work and this why it's important. Or look, this is a contribution that I'm making to the team. And it's interesting how pervasive it is because to me now, I feel like it's quite old fashioned and it's something that belongs in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. And yet it persists even now. This idea that if you point to what you're doing, if you are very clear about what you're doing, if you advertise it, if you promote it, that there's something somehow evil about that and that you're a bad person whereas actually it's a courtesy to others because how are they supposed to know what you're doing all of the time they haven't got time to find out every single detail of what you've achieved like be open about it now I had a really great lesson um, from my sister about this about five years ago when I was doing a lot of comedy stuff and I always had shows on, I was always promoting my shows, always trying to get people to come to previews and come to shows and then come to Edinburgh, then listen to this podcast and listen to this thing and listen to that. And I said to my sister, you know, I'm really worried that I'm coming across on social media as a complete asshole because I'm always promoting things like buy my book, come to my show, look at me doing this, look at me doing that. You know, what am I coming, am I really turning into a horrible person? And my sister, who is a teacher, she just looked at me and said, Viv, isn't it your job to do that? That was such a huge moment for me because I was like, oh, yeah, you're right, actually. That is my job. (laughs) And sometimes in things that we do, it is actually your job to let other people know what you're doing and to show not tell, you know, make it visible to other people what you're doing. And it's actually a courtesy, you know, it's a courtesy to the people who come to my shows, to the people who buy my books, to the people who listen to my podcast, to the agent who sold the book, to the publisher who published the book, to all the huge, huge, you know, support network that is involved in the stuff that I do. It's a courtesy to them that I show, hey, this is a new thing I'm working on. Hey, this thing is happening. And I think if you can think of it that way, it's much more helpful. And obviously, you know, you want to be pointing. This is another thing that comes from Margaret Heffernan, actually, the business thinker I mentioned earlier. Point to facts, facts and achievements, uh, factual achievements. You know, did you complete that project? Great. Tell people about it. Do you have a show coming up? Great. Tell people about it. Did you write a book? Tell people. Did you get some positive reviews? Show them to people. Point to facts. And facts are not self-promotion. They're just letting people know about facts and about news. And that's really useful for social media as well, because on social media, we love to share celebratory facts. So anytime you have a celebratory fact, you can put that on social media. Anytime you have an achievement, you can put it on there and people will be happy to celebrate with you. And it's not showing off. It's just sharing the facts. Yeah. And why do you think that we are so afraid of doing that? I have a real cringe around the expression building personal brand. I'm cautious to mention that because I know that a lot of people think it's really important to build, I don't even like saying it, to build a personal brand. (laughs) I don't want to treat myself as a commodity. There's enough um, consumerism and commodification in the world without me adding to it too and turning myself into some kind of marketable commodity. No, thank you. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of this idea of building brand. I am very wary of it. Instead, I would suggest that 
if you're doing that stuff that is around what some people might call personal branding, which is making yourself visible, being clear about your intentions, showing people what you're doing in the world, I would go right back to the question that I had about podcast, which is why? Why are you doing that? And the answer needs to be bigger than so other people know how great I am. Yeah. And I think a lot around personal brand, the why ends up being so other people will know how great I am. And that's not good enough. Mm. Of course, you don't want other people to think you're rubbish. Don't do that. But the why needs to be so other people will know who I am and see what I can do for them. The whole idea behind Lift As You Climb, which is really about supporting others whilst you support yourself, helping others so that you can then ask them for help. It's about what I call altruistic ambition. So you can be as ambitious as you want. You can build as big a personal brand as you want, but it better be altruistic. It better have some reason outside of everyone seeing how great you are. It's great to be great. Like, let everybody think that you're great, but be great for a reason. (laughs) And in this visibility, you should be showing people the reason. You shouldn't be showing them, no, I'm telling you this just so you can celebrate me. You should be letting them celebrate whatever it is that you're putting out into the world, which you're doing for them, not for you. The message and and something that is bigger than yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, what's the point? We can all make a difference in the world, however small, you know, the difference might be, you know, you want to bring more humor into the industry that you work in, or you want to bring more vision, or you want to bring more sustainability, or there are all kinds of things that you might want to put out in the world that are helpful to other people. And those are the things to point to in this so-called personal branding but yeah, my ultimate message is beware, beware personal branding. I reckon we're going to look back on that in 10, 20 years time and cringe. <laughs> I agree with you. I think there's something that we borrowed from kind of company branding, right? And there's a lot of things around how you portray to yourself. What is the message? What is your positioning? What, what is your vision? And I think that's probably why personal branding is kind of borrowed from there. But I think that the most profound thing, which which I 100% agree with you, is, is having something, having a message, having something that actually helps people and, and get people better somehow, right? Or even being a role model for the next generations, you know, whatever you choose to be, the, the why. And do, do you think that women sometimes struggle with, with that, with this big vision of, you know, th- this is the big vision that I want to, you know, to change the world? While, of course, I'm generalizing here, while a lot of men have that big vision a, li- a little bit more kind of crafted as they, they grow up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are thousands and thousands of statistics that would bear this out. It's the reason why there aren't very many women on FTSE 100 boards. It's the reason why there's a gender pay gap. Of course, all of these things exist because of 4,000 years of patriarchy and until the last 100 years of all of us being educated equally, and that is still isn't true all around the world, of most people becoming literate, which again, isn't true all around the world. Um, that's only existed for 100 years that we've been able to talk about equality and, and make it a reality. So no wonder it's pretty slow. These stereotypes are absolutely everywhere. But I always say, just because a stereotype is real, and of course, stereotypes are real, otherwise, we wouldn't have all these statistics. Um, but it doesn't mean that you as an individual are, are that stereotype. So the stereotype of women in general feeling that they, in inverted commas, shouldn't do certain things or can't do certain things, it bears itself out. We see the statistics. But Beyonce doesn't believe that. Greta Thunberg doesn't believe that. Malala doesn't believe that because they're not a stereotype and you don't have to be either. Mm. And what, what, what leaders can do to encourage more of those incredible women to show themselves and to, to be there and to expose themselves to the world for the bigger causes? I think, of course, if you work in an organisation or you have the ability to put other people on stage or give a microphone to someone else or give a spotlight to other people. And I do encourage that in Lift As You Climb is like whatever spotlight you've got left over, give it to other people. And certainly we can do that. 
not everybody feels able to do that because they might not feel secure in their own success. But if you feel secure in what you're doing, then shine a spotlight on other people. But ultimately, it does come down to quite an individualistic thing, I think, of looking at yourself and asking, what is it that I need to do to move forward? What is it I need to do to overcome some of these structural external obstacles and making sure that you don't have the internal obstacles that are then going to make it even worse. You know, there are so many different groups in society who face a lot of structural obstacles. And luckily we're starting to examine those and and try to break through them. And that's bad enough. But also a lot of us have internal obstacles of self-doubt imposter syndrome, I think imposter syndrome just is self-doubt, not having enough self-belief, being trapped in these ideas that we've been discussing throughout this conversation of, you know, success is linear. And if you do this, then you must then do that. And I would really embrace that message that we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation of curiosity, you know, be curious, like, we don't know what really works. I always give the example of Michelle Obama, who's really prominent in How to Own the Room, the book. We didn't know 30 years ago that we could have a first lady who would be black, who would be one of the greatest public speakers of the last 100 years, who would motivate, you know, millions of of women and young girls around the world to see themselves differently. If you had have asked me as a child, can that person exist? I would have said it seems extremely unlikely. And I think that person could become a hate figure. And to some people, um, a very strange minority of people, Michelle Obama is a hate figure. But To have that example of somebody who confounds all of our expectations and just turns it around in a heartbeat. And that's happened with, you know, many figures in the last 10 years, like, you know, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand is another brilliant example of that. In Finland, they've got this virtually all-female cabinet um, who are in their uh, 30s and 40s. And the Prime Minister is Sana Marin, who's this incredible young woman. The idea of the face of power and what leadership looks like is changing all of the time. And what it looks like today is not what it will look like tomorrow. We don't know what things look like. We don't know what success looks like. And keep being curious about, what if this works? And what if it looks like that? Because we really don't know. Mm. This requires people being willing and, and courageous to, to break the rules, right? And, and to challenge those stereotypes. From your experience with, you know, coaching so many, so many amazing women to, to get through their moment of, of doubt and et cetera, and imposter syndrome and, and get somewhere and say, okay, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be the face of business X, Y, and Z in the future. What is your experience when people kind of break those rules and finally they become themselves? The biggest thing is the realization that you don't have to do more. You have to actually do less. You don't have to be all things to all people. You don't have to do so much. You don't have to do everything brilliantly. You can do less and really just dig really, really deep into who you are as a person and let that shine. And that is something that we do all of the time when we're with our friends. When we're with our friends and we're with our family, we are our most authentic, ordinary and extraordinary self at the same time. And we don't try to do anything. We don't try to be anything. And we just accept that those people are going to love spending time with us. They're going to love us. You know, we, no matter how lonely you are or how solitary you are, you always have somebody in your life to whom you are that person. And to learn how to be that person in a professional context is incredibly liberating. So when you are leading a team or you're doing something really uh, important and quite intimidating, to be able to think, what do I need to do in this moment? Oh, be myself, like follow my instincts, trust myself, lean on my experience and my knowledge and not having to reach up to some kind of mythical standard. And that's something that I really learned in comedy from observing so many different people. There's no blueprint. You can't look at somebody and think, oh, they did that thing. I'm going to copy that and then I'll be funny. I'm going to copy the way they stand and then people will listen to me. I'm going to copy their tone of voice. No, you have to find all of those things in yourself and they look different in every single person. That's hard work, but there's also a simplicity to it. 
that if you can dig into yourself and just be more like you, but in a professional context, things actually are quite easy. Be less. Oh my God. I have tears in my eyes, babe. Seriously. It's like, it's almost like I needed to hear this today. It's really profound and so, so true. We always, and comparison is the kill of joy, right? We're always looking at the neighbor and someone else. And then when, when a, you have a deep conversation with a friend of yours and then they just remind you of who you are and you realize that it's, it's about being less. I love this. Yeah, well, it's very always really interesting to me. And I think I think about this a lot, I think, because I don't work in a corporate environment and I don't work in a team and I'm not subject to all of that. I've just worked on my own for 20 years. I really noticed this big disconnect between people's personal life and their professional life. And in their personal life, they don't spend their whole time thinking, oh, why does my friend not love me as much as they love this other friend? Or like, okay, you think that when you're a teenager, but you get older and you don't think that. You just like enjoy your friendships and you, you, you know, enjoy your family and enjoy the people around you. But in our professional lives, we spend the whole time thinking, how can I be seen as better than this person? And how can I be, get more money than that person? And I think if we could bring some more of that trust and the relaxation and the informality of our out of work lives into our work lives but you know do it in a professional way not in an unprofessional way I think we would all just enjoy things a lot more and not feel that we're constantly trying to reach some kind of standard true we should learn everyone listening to us right now should learn how to be more vive I love it <laughs> oh don't say that I'm a nightmare <laughs> uh, you know I've I've I'm always learning and I'm always messing up I'm always messing up but that's the beauty of it, right? You mess up, you go forward, you follow your curiosity, you're present and you're there and you, you know. Yeah, I think if, if you're not messing up and you're not learning stuff, then you're probably not challenging yourself. And eventually you're going to have a big fall. That's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> Viv, any, any less words that you wanted to share today with the awesome people listening to us? I guess my, my mantra at the moment it's embrace uncertainty. And I remember when I first uh, went freelance, I discovered about this idea in psychotherapy of embracing uncertainty. And I felt really challenged by it. It's a hugely important thing to master if you are freelance um, or if you're an entrepreneur, because there's so much uncertainty, so many things you can't predict. And you have to be able to keep going without that uncertainty. And I think now it has become even more important to learn to be present in every day, control the things that you can control and try and get on with things as much as you can, but just let go of everything else and embrace uncertainty. I love this. And that's a really beautiful way to close this conversation. And I, I enjoyed every bit of it, made so many notes. I think it's going to be difficult for us to edit this to, <laughs> because, you know, there's so many good things on every single uh, yeah minute that we, we had this conversation. I, I mean it. I really enjoyed that, Viv. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Beta. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening so far. Make sure that you listen to other episodes. You can go to hypercurious.fm. And if you want to stay in touch, I'm around. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You just search for my name and you're going to find me. If you love this conversation and more, make sure that you also do a five star and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if that's your preferred podcast app. It will mean the world to me. For now, ciao, ciao.